Welcome to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now. Well, welcome to my 50th episode of All Things. I'm excited to have made it to this milestone. I've been recording episodes for the last two years, and if you've been around a while, you know I cover a lot of different topics, and I really appreciate you sticking with me. If you're new here, welcome. Thanks for joining the party. It really is a privilege and an honor and a joy to do this research and share the truths that I discover with you, my listeners. Well, today we're going to take a deep dive into something that I've wanted to address for several months now. It's going to be a hard episode to record, and it's going to be a hard episode for you to hear, but nonetheless, I want to go there. I want to talk about what's going on with the Uyghur ethnic minorities in China. Now, you might be familiar with a lot of headlines. You know they've been in the news lately, but the more I researched, the more I uncovered, and the more troubled I was, and not just about atrocities taking place in China, but sort of the grand plan, the infrastructure within the Chinese government that has made made this moment possible and is going to make more moments like this possible in the years ahead. So I hope you'll listen, even though this is kind of a hard listen. So the Chinese Communist Party, which I will probably refer to as the CCP um, off and on through this episode, has rounded up and sent more than 1 million Uyghurs, maybe closer to 2 million Uyghurs, to what the CCP calls re-education camps in Xinjiang. That is the westernmost region of China where the Uyghurs live. The region, of course, has been in and out of the news for many years, for several years, especially lately. But there were new headlines just last month as the BBC interviewed a number of women who survived their time in the camps. And the women and even a guard from the camp were able to report on the extent of rape and sexual abuse and torture taking place in the camps, thus giving us a more insight into what's actually happening there and these new headlines. These women who survived their time in the camps said in this BBC report that men would come to their cells very late at night pick the women that they wanted and rape them in a room without surveillance cameras. They said masked men would gang rape them and other women and that the women were tortured with an electric prod. The women even reported being bitten all over their bodies to the point of being disfigured. Of course, before those headlines last month, there have been routine reports, witnesses speaking to mass sterilizations, forced abortions, the removal of children from families, the separation of families, enslaved labor. Witnesses say torture has led to the death of many in the camps, but of course we don't have any kind of official count on that. Journalists on the ground there in Xinjiang have seen signs prohibiting, for example, men from wearing beards and women from wearing head coverings, these behaviors being associated with Islam. And satellite imagery reveals that sites um, of cultural importance, maybe like mosques, have been totally razed, just totally destroyed and removed. Satellite imagery also shows that these re-education camps, or I think maybe we should call them concentration camps or death camps, they have grown in both size and number over the past several years. The CCP says these are re-education camps. When journalists have been allowed inside, they have seen classrooms full of men and women, teens and children, all separated out according to age and gender. And they seem to be very happy singing Chinese nationalist songs, participating in traditional dance, memorizing and reciting Chinese history. Everyone looks happy, eager to learn all that the CCP has for them. When one journalist asked one of the camp authorities what they would do if someone didn't want to come to the camp, he said, oh, that would never happen. That has never happened. China, of course, denies all allegations of human rights abuses. 
Instead, the CCP officials say the Uyghurs are Islamic extremists and they are in need of correction. They claim that the Uyghurs are people who won't work. They won't send their children to school. They don't want to educate their kids. They say they're Islamic terrorists who refuse to assimilate into Chinese culture. So the CCP says they must re-educate them to make them productive members of a society, to ensure that their kids get an education, to prevent any acts of terrorism. News media have a CCP official on record saying this about the Uyghurs, and this is a quote. They are malignant tumors. Their faith is a communicable plague. You can't uproot all the weeds hidden among the crops in the field one by one. You need to spray chemicals to kill them all. The CCP is actively churning out propaganda videos saying that the Uyghurs are happy to be led away from Islamic extremism. But experts who follow Chinese history, who've had their eye on Chinese history and politics and economics for the last several decades, say it is past the time to sound the alarm. So I want to give you a little bit more background about the Uyghurs. There are 12 million Uyghurs in the province of Xinjiang. And Xinjiang, again, it's in the westernmost part of China. It shares a border with Kazakhstan, a long border with Kazakhstan. The Uyghurs feel that the western province of Xinjiang is their homeland, that they should be independent from China, that that's their place and they should not be part of China. The Uyghurs speak a Turkic Turkic language and their religion is similar to that of Sunni Islam. So their culture and their identity really are much closer to Istanbul in Turkey than Beijing in China. Xinjiang is separated from the rest of China by the Gobi Desert. It's way beyond the Great Wall. Even Xinjiang means new frontier. So the Uyghurs would like to be their own autonomous people group. They don't want to be part of China. When the Chinese Communist Party wrote its first constitution back in 1931, Article 14 of the CCP constitution said national minorities would have the right to self-determine. They would have the right to separate from China. So that was the plan back in the 1930s that people groups like the Uyghurs would be able to self-determine, be able to be removed from China. But then in 1949, when Mao Zedong became the chairman of the communist, the Chinese Communist Party, that all changed. Since then, really none of the ethnic ethnic minorities or ethnic regions in China have been able to self-govern. They haven't really been able to be autonomous. They haven't been able to really educate their children or live life the way they wanted. They've had to assimilate to what the CCP prefers. Now, a little another caveat, another background to the situation with the Uyghurs. After 9-11 happened here in the United States, after we had the terrorist attack here in the U.S., Um, The whole world, of course, but including the United States, had heightened suspicion and security surrounding groups like the Uyghurs because of their real ties to Islamic groups like Al-Qaeda outside of China. Now, there have been no acts of violence by the Uyghurs inside of China. There have definitely been some protests and some small uprisings because the Uyghurs are largely mistreated. Their access to various resources like employment and staying in hotels is actively blocked by the Chinese government. So they have risen up and had protests. And during those protests, the CCP has claimed that the Uyghurs have been violent, but experts and watchdog groups say that's just not true, that the protests have been peaceful, but the CCP has reacted violently to the Uyghurs when they've risen up. 
Of course, there's no independent press in China, so the Uyghurs have no voice. They have tried to flee the country. There has been an exodus of Uyghurs outside of China. And when journalists come across them in other nations, they've noted these are not jihadists. These are not people who are trying to wage terrorism by any means. These are people who are fleeing. These are people who are trying to settle. These are settlers. They are looking for a better way of life, a place to educate their children, a place for their family to live safely. But the Chinese Communist Party continues to exploit the suspicion that arose after 9-11 and continues to call the Uyghurs terrorists. In the last eight to nine years or so, the CCP has really required full-blown assimilation from all minority groups, not just the Uyghurs. They've expected assimilation from the Tibetans, the Mongolians. Of course, we've seen it recently in Hong Kong, Taiwan, the South China Sea. We see the CCP exerting itself throughout China, and especially along Chinese borders, requiring assimilation from all the minority groups. The Uyghur atrocities are the ones making headlines, but they're really just part of a larger plan, a plan that those who've been watching China carefully, politically, economically, and otherwise, these Chinese experts say this plan has been in motion for decades. And that plan is that the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, wants the Chinese people to have total homogeneity. They want the population to be homogeneous, and they want China to reign supreme in the world. Experts say the CCP is after nothing short of global domination. So, as I said above, it was 1949 when the Chinese Communist Party gained full control of the current geographic borders of today's China, and Mao was the chairman of the CCP. The CCP gained strength and power across China in the 1950s and 60s and the 70s. And of course, there were terrible human rights atrocities during those decades as well. But nonetheless, the Communist Party grew in strength. While Nixon became the first American president to go to Beijing in an effort to improve relations between the U.S. and China, Nixon wanted to break up the communist bloc in that part of the world. He wanted to have more influence near the Soviet Union. And so he wanted to have a good relationship with China. And relations did get better with Nixon. And then they became official under Jimmy Carter in 1979. CCP, those who watch the CCP say that in the 1980s, the Chinese Communist Party leadership made a strategic decision to begin hiding their wealth and hiding their power and biding their time until they could gain a more global control, until they could like exert themselves around the world. So that's kind of what was going on behind the scenes in the 80s. They wanted to conceal their strength. They wanted to conceal what they what they were actually growing behind the scenes while integrating capitalism. So this effort, this method, this strategy would allow them to grow relationships throughout the world through trade, and it would allow them to gain economic wealth in the 90s and the 2000s. And that's definitely what happened. Now, there should have been a wake-up call for the United States and for the whole world and the West in 1989. If you are my age or older, you probably remember watching the Tiananmen Square massacre on TV. And that is when the CCP murdered students who were protesting their government. That should have been a wake-up call for the United States. We should have known then that all of these years of engagement with China, all of these efforts to warm our relations with China, the CCP still had an iron fist. See, we wrongly thought that if China got wealthier, it would get freer. But the Tiananmen Square massacre showed that that was not the case, that greater wealth did not mean greater freedom for the Chinese people. 
So rather than really doing much, except for watching it and condemning it, we continued doing business with China. Because ultimately, doing business with China was a net positive for the American consumer. And this is what is hard to say out loud, but the reality is American consumers, my family and yours, got cheaper clothing, cheaper kitchen tools, cheaper household items and car items because of our trade relationship with China. So the Chinese Communist Party got richer and their geopolitical ambitions grew and we got things for cheap. This is where things start to get really uncomfortable for you and me. The truth is there is an insatiable appetite and it's been growing over the last several decades in the United States for cheap products. That's created a market whereby corporations are constantly seeking cheaper labor so they can sell the product for cheaper. Of course, we've got globalization going on and there's just an increasing demand for lower and lower prices. And as a result, we have to be honest and say that our appetites for consumerism have played a real role in some of the dark and sinister developments around our globe. I learned during my research for this episode that the majority of China's cotton comes from Xinjiang. So if you have cotton clothes and they say they were made in China, it's very possible that a Uyghur's forced labor played a role in creating that t-shirt. This is hard for us to internalize. It's so easy. Like my reflexes, I want to be like, this is far away. This problem is too huge. I'm just one person. What can I do? But you and I really must reckon with this reality. So Xi Jinping, he is the current president of the People's Republic of China. He became president in 2013. He already was, as of 2012, the general secretary of the CCP and the chairman of the military. So basically that means he's by far the most prominent political leader in China, just like the preeminent ruler of China is Xi Jinping since 2012. And Xi has been very clear about his ambitions for China and his desire that any force necessary be used to create the homogeneity that they desire and the supremacy that they're looking for across the globe. In 2012 and 2013, as Xi Jinping was coming to power, he, along with the Chinese Communist Party, initiated something called One Belt, One Road, the One Belt, One Road Initiative. This is basically a global strategy, a strategy inside China to develop infrastructure by investing in nearly 70 countries and international organizations. China's hope is economically and politically to change the orientation of the whole world away from the West, away from the United States, away from Washington, and toward Beijing. That is the hope with the One Belt, One Road initiative. So in the U.S., since the 1970s, our thinking has been, let's engage China in trade and politics. Let's deepen our relationship with China in hopes of creating a more democratic approach in China. This has totally backfired, though. This is not happening. In reality, the Chinese Communist Party has gotten wealthier and increasingly committed to their communist principles. And we're seeing just one symptom of that in this Uyghur genocide. So again, Xinjiang is in the westernmost part of China, as I said earlier, and that's where the Uyghurs live. Well, Xinjiang happens to be the gateway for the One Belt, One Road plan. There are six trade routes that go from China to the rest of the world, and three of those trade routes are located in Xinjiang. One goes to the Indian Ocean, one goes to the Middle East, and one goes into Russia and the Baltics and Europe. So China has a goal of making this integrated economic market to the whole world from China. And they cannot do that unless they have total power and domination over Xinjiang. 
China has tremendous wealth right now, and they are happy to loan that wealth to give that capital to invest in countries that need the money because then they can exert their influence there. So for one example, one expert in Africa says this, quote, right now, You could say that any big project in African cities that is higher than three floors or roads that are longer than three kilometers are most likely being built and engineered by the Chinese. China is now Africa's biggest trade partner, with Sino-African trade topping $200 per year. There are over 10,000 Chinese-owned firms currently operating throughout the African continent. And a very similar story can be told about South America right now. China's growth and global influence is economic and it's political. China is currently the biggest trade partner of most countries that are in the UN. Let me repeat that again. So the UN, the United Nations General Assembly, of all the countries that are in that, China is currently the biggest trade partner with most of them. Not only that, but China is a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council. So the CCP One Belt, One Road initiative is going swimmingly. It's going very well. They initiated it in 1949. They want to see the culmination happen 100 years later in 2049. That'll be exactly 100 years after the establishment of the People's Republic of China. And it's going very well. They are dominating economically and otherwise. They are seeking to, like I said, make Beijing the center of global trade and economics and politics rather than the West. So how should the world respond? We are hearing what's going on with the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Evidently, this is happening to other ethnic minority groups, maybe in other ways, but there is assimilation being required. There are human rights violations happening. What should the United States do? What should we as American listeners do? On the last day in office, Trump's Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, labeled China's behavior as genocide. So it kind of felt like a political act, honestly, to put pressure on the Biden administration because Pompeo was on his way out. It was his last day. But thankfully, President Biden's Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, agrees with Pompeo, and he also calls China's atrocities a genocide. Politicians are careful to use this word genocide because it's a specific word with specific ramifications. Let me tell you about that. The Genocide Convention was the first human rights treaty adopted by the General Assembly of the UN, the United Nations, in 1948. So this was after World War II. This is when the international community got together and made a commitment for never again, never again, would the atrocities that were committed in World War II happen in the world. Those who signed the Genocide Convention now have an obligation to be on the lookout for, to prevent and to punish nations who commit genocide. Of course, we're a signatory of that. The following must be present for it to be considered, quote, genocide. There's five things that have to be present for it to be considered genocide. Let me tell you what those five things are really quick. One, killing members of the group. Two, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. Three, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. Four, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. And five, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. So in my opinion, based on the reports I've read, the eyewitness testimony, all five of those are actively happening. All five are taking place in China right now. Of course, People are dying. There's bodily and mental harm. Of course, there are calculated efforts to bring about physical destruction. They're preventing birth. They're removing children. 
But the question many world leaders have is, is there active killing actually happening? There's torture happening. There's all these other human rights violations, but is, are the Chinese actively killing the Uyghurs is, is sort of the question or the hesitation that many political leaders have. So, so far, the United States um, is, was the first country to call it genocide. And then last week, both the Netherlands and Canada also used the word genocide. But as I said above, China is currently the biggest trade partner with most countries in the UN. So the UN is going to be very hesitant to label this genocide because most of the member countries then will lose out on trade with China. So do you see how integrated and complicated and sinister all of this is? China is deeply involved in global business, and that makes all of this really complicated. Um, now, here in the United States, we did pass the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act in June 2020. There was tremendous support for it in both the House and the Senate, and both by Democrats and Republicans. It was awesome to see the bipartisan support and see Trump sign it into law. That is helpful, but there's just so much more that we need to be doing. And there are currently two bills pending at present, the S-65, called the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, and H.R. 1155, which is a bill ensuring that goods made with forced labor in Xinjiang do not enter the United States. So there's these two bills that are currently on the floor. But many businesses are pushing back on these bills. You would think it would be common sense. You would think it'd be a no-brainer that every corporation would be like sprinting for the opportunity. Yes, let's enact these protections against this ethnic minority that is being brutalized. But the reality is businesses are pushing back a bit. Companies like Apple, Coca-Cola, Nike, some of the wealthiest, hugest corporations around the world are spending a ton of money to lobby, or maybe they would say to educate Congress on the intricacies of the bill. Now, I don't really know what Apple and Coca-Cola and Nike are saying to Congress. It could be that they are pursuing totally selfish reasons, that they just want to keep growing capital. Or it could be that they have an understanding of their business in China and they want to sort of direct the bill in certain ways that will actually do more good. I don't know. I can't speak to that. But it's all so complicated. The politics, the economics, the business, the human rights, everything is totally interrelated. Businesses know that if they don't have cheap labor from China or if they can't sell in China, that their, their businesses, their corporations will go bankrupt. Corporations need both things. They need the cheap labor, and then they need the market. They need to be able to sell their product in China. Without that, their corporations will go bankrupt. So we've saw this complexity recently with both Disney and the NBA. Let's talk about that for a second. So Disney released the live action Mulan film last year and Mulan instantly started making headlines because in the credits, Disney thanked the government officials in Xinjiang for letting Disney film there. So the Disney camera crew arrived in August 2018 when these detention camps were very well known already. They were known to be there, and yet Disney went into the region anyway, asked for permission. They were granted for permission. They ended up filming what ended up being just one minute of background footage for a two-hour film. And yet they thanked the government that was actively torturing Uyghurs while they were in the exact same region in the credits to the film. Not only this issue with Disney and China, but Hollywood in general, China is almost the largest box office market in the world, meaning there's more people in China who go to the movies, almost. They're about to pass up 
the U.S., and Canada with a number of people who are willing to pay to go to movies. So Hollywood and Disney don't want to lose that income. They would rather bow down to the CCP. They would rather cater to the Chinese government to get Chinese business while these atrocities are happening at the same time as they're filming the movie. We saw this happen with the NBA. The NBA totally cowered to the Chinese Communist Party recently. The general manager of the Houston Rockets back in 2019 tweeted an image on Twitter that was supportive of the pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong. His tweet said, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. That's it. This is the manager of the Houston Rockets. This is what he said. Well, the CCP saw the tweet. Multiple Chinese corporations saw the tweet. And they rushed to stop their business with the NBA as a result. They said, oh, this one guy, this one manager in the NBA, he supports Hong Kong. Well, we're done doing business with the NBA then. So in an effort to fix that, the NBA released a statement apologizing that his tweet offended their supporters. The backlash over that tweet ended up costing the NBA hundreds of millions of dollars. They lost all that Chinese revenue because one guy said, I stand with Hong Kong. Now, at that time, you might remember NBA star LeBron James said the following, and I quote, this was what he said about the guy that tweeted, the the Houston Rockets manager who tweeted this. James said, I believe he wasn't educated on the situation at hand, and he spoke. And so many people could have been harmed, not only financially, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. So just be careful what we tweet and say what we do. Even though, yes, we do have freedom of speech, but there can be a lot of negative that comes with that too. Of course, the negative, LeBron James stood to lose a ton of money, and he probably did lose a ton of money, probably a lot of personal revenue from NBA fans in China when all of that happened. Of course, the NBA lost a ton, LeBron probably lost a ton. The relationship between the NBA and China has been repaired, and it's now going strong. Same with Disney. But all of this makes it really hard for me to believe that Disney or Hollywood or the NBA really care about human rights. When push comes to shove, these multinational corporations stand to lose valuable revenue from China, and so they cower to one of the most violent governments in the world. You know, recently Hollywood threatened to never film in Georgia, in the state of Georgia again, because the state has some anti-abortion laws on the books. I think this is crazy. Hollywood's willing to film in China, where there are forced abortions, but they're threatening not to film in Georgia because Georgia wants to make abortion illegal. And the NBA hosted their last season inside the Disney bubble, mind you, the Disney and NBA teaming up there. And the NBA players and sports... Everybody was wearing all kinds of BLM jerseys, which I want to say, I fully support them doing that. I respect their jerseys. I respect that statement. I respect their show of support. I respect the activism on the court. I know some of my listeners don't, but I do. And I support their desire to see justice in the United States. But it feels so disingenuous when you're falling all over yourselves to apologize to the Communist Party in China. When you're making billions as a league and millions as a player, and you're profiting from the preferential treatment of a regime that is actively snuffing out ethnic minorities, it's well-known human rights atrocities. So it's it's not just the NBA. It's not just Disney. All of this feels totally disheartening, messed up, discouraging. 
app, it's not just Apple, it's not just Nike, it's hundreds of more manufacturers who are eager to provide the West with cheap products and Western companies that are eager to sell their products in Chinese markets. It's a dark cycle. Now, the 2022 Winter Games are set to be in Beijing, which just seems crazy to me. In another year, they should be in Beijing. The 2008 Olympics were in Beijing. And there was an outcry then because of human rights violations back then. But the International Olympic Committee claimed, well, if we don't have the Olympics there, or that having the Olympics there, excuse me, would improve human rights in the country. Well, that's proven false because human rights have worsened in China since 2008. And I do not for the life of me understand why we're having them there again in 2022. My hope is that athletes will back out. My hope is that countries will take a stand and they won't do it, but time will tell. Many human rights groups and lawmakers in the US, Canada, and the Netherlands are calling on the IOC to move the Olympics, but it seems to be falling on deaf ears. So obviously this whole thing feels hopeless when it comes to the politics, the economics, the UN, the Olympics. Where is the hope? What can be done? You know, the 1990s genocide in Rwanda, we had no trouble calling that a genocide. We were quick to say, condemn it and say that was a genocide, but we didn't stand to lose anything from Rwanda. Rwanda wasn't supplying us with anything. Rwanda wasn't a customer for any of our businesses. If we're going to call out China, if we're going to take action there, it will require sacrifice on behalf of all of us, lawmakers, business owners, consumers. We all have to be all in. And I don't know how that's going to happen. Well, there's a few truths that I have been reminding myself of as I've dove into this, and I want to remind them, uh, remind you of them as well. You know, in Tim Keller's book called Generous Justice, I can't recommend it enough. He says, seeking justice is the inevitable sign that you have been justified. So in other words, if you acknowledge that you are poor and needy and without any hope, without God, your savior, and he has justified you, he has saved you by grace through faith, then the inevitable outworking of that is that you will want to help those who are also poor and needy. Our justification makes us concerned with justice. We want to help others. We are driven to reduce suffering when we have been justified. So that's got to be our gut response here. Our gut response has to be, how can I help reduce suffering? Let's not be desensitized because this problem is so huge and so far away and we feel so small. The prophet Isaiah says, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. So we've got to do something. If we are justified, if we want to have a biblical faith and ethic, we've got to do something. I think first, We can know and we can share. We can wake up. We can just talk about it. What I'm doing right now, you can share this episode. You can read the articles that I'm going to link in the show notes. We can just know about it. I think too, you and I need to think more deeply and carefully about what we consume. We must be willing to care for the poor. Let's not show contempt for our maker by oppressing the poor. Let's think about what we're consuming. Let's allow our consciences to be pricked. Let's not buy cheap stuff. Let's not keep buying cheap stuff. Let's choose instead maybe to go without. I know that this probably won't have a very big effect on the market, but it will probably have an effect on our hearts. And as our hearts grow and change and our friends' hearts grow and change, maybe change will be affected. And I don't have exact guidelines for you here. I'm not saying boycott China necessarily, boycott Disney, boycott Apple, boycott the NBA, boycott cotton. I'm I'm not saying that. That's between you and the Lord. But let's do think this through. Do we need so much stuff? 
A third thing we can do is we can contact our senators and our representatives. There will be a link in the show notes to do just that. I did it today. It's easy. It's a small gesture, but it's it's something. And then, of course, we can pray and we can ask God to move. And it's here where I, I'm just reminded that God's vengeance is actually a comfort. His wrath flows from his love. He will avenge the atrocities that we are seeing. Psalm 94, starting in verse 20, he sa- it says, Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. That will happen, friends. Let's pray that God would bring justice and bring it swiftly. Let's ask him to show us what we can do right here, right now. Thanks for listening to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply his word to what's happening here and now.